One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Nowies podcast. I am James Eno, joined by my co-host, Timmy Lang. Hi, everyone. Um, this morning we have a guest from Northern Ireland. It's our first guest from Northern Ireland, actually, um, Michael Orwin. The Michael Orwin has got a, a very, very interesting story. Um, and look, for the people that don't know you, Michael, do you want to tell us a little about who you are and where you're from? Uh, well, obviously I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland with an accent. Um, I I worked as a publican in London from when I was about early 20s up until I was about 30. And then I moved out to South Africa. I live in Cape Town. And I got in the, the, the lifestyle of the rock star out there, you know. Uh, and I got heavily involved. I became addicted to cocaine. And then after a few years, the money started running out. And I was in a bad shape and did a trip to get me out of the the crap that I was in. And uh, But I'd been sort of... Anyway, I did what I did and I uh, got caught uh, coming through Gatwick on the way back. I uh, got a 12-year sentence for drug trafficking, six in prison and six on license. So uh, when I was inside, I was like, woe was me, you know, and then the first sort of couple of weeks was the detox. And then when I, I went, I was doubled up with this young lad who was uh, was a bit like porridge in reverse. You know, I was the new newbie and the old boy, but he was the... The frequent guy and uh, with all the knowledge, you know, and he, he was a lovely young lad. But I was sort of once I sort of sobered up after the detox, I I sort of went, Jesus, what's going on here, you know? And uh, mm. and I said, and then I started getting into education. I started mentoring. I started coaching. Uh, after a couple, I was spread or sent around a few English jails. I'd done my first two years in English prisons. And then I got my transfer home because family was obviously here and I didn't get many visits in England. So uh, after two years, uh, I came home and went to McGabry for a month or two and then to McGilligan and were sent, seen out my sentence. And I spent the rest of that time getting a degree uh, and recording everything that was going on. I uh, got out, did a master's uh, straight after I got out. And then uh, been involved with criminal justice things and torturing people, basically, for a, <laughs> for a while. And yeah. then I got my book published there a couple of years ago, and uh, which was a, a recording, a re- like a diary of everything that happened from way back in 2007, you know. So I got that published, mm. and it's been a great help to people. So, And I've just recently, last year or so... Uh, became a member board member of a turnaround project in Belfast which helps young people uh coming out of uh, High Bank which is the, the young young younger prison you know so we're hoping to expand that into uh, the two main yeah. prisons so yeah so you've that much. Th- that's, that's like a, a three minute overview of your whole story <laughs> but if I want I want to bring you back to your childhood like take what was it back, like growing back. <laughs> what what was it like growing up in Belfast and had just a mother and father and the home siblings was that well I mean that's very very interesting after listening to Gabor Mate again last week which again what a what a result you know um an amazing guy uh mm. you know my story I grew up uh in a loyalist Protestant background. My father was in the RUC. Uh, so I grew up through the troubles. Um, being a policeman's son wasn't the best predicament to be in whenever you Because yeah. nobody liked you. Um, it was, you know, you got, you got it. But uh, I sort of lived under a, a constant, but like many of us in those days, not just me, we grew, under, grew up under a constant threat of death. You know, uh, 
going to school, checking my dad's car for bombs before I went. You know, it was just answering the door in a certain way. You would never stand in front of the door. You'd always stand by the side and planning a, your planning your getaways and uh, all that sort of stuff. School-wise, uh, I used to do my English teacher's head in because I was always very good at English but never did anything. So she was always you know, pushing me and pushing me. Um and I would always, I loved English and loved reading, but I was too, by the time sixth form, fifth and sixth form came around, I was too interested in football and women and beer, you know, so it was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I never I dabbled with drugs when I was younger. Uh, always, we, we could only get really blow and, and at our time, you know, it was only uh, resin, you know, um, which was, which was okay. Uh, and it was always something for the weekend, you know, it was never... Uh, so, and then when I was old enough uh, to get out of here, I got out of here and, and moved to London then, you know, so. Do you know when you were a child, um, there's an awful echo there. Maybe if somebody, if you mute when I speak. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's way better. That's way better. But you know when you were a child, uh, Michael, um, and you were the father of a, a police officer, and around that time there would be car bombs and executions and murders and everything. Like, did you always have a sense of um, you were a target? You know, or was there always a heightened sense of anxiety in the family, or was it something that you just was just a part of normal life? Yeah, well, I think that there's a word for it now, isn't it? Um... Hyper hyper visual or hyper hyper vigilant. Yeah. Hyper vigilant. That's it. Yeah, I only stumbled across this a couple of years because somebody had said it after they got out of prison. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, everything you did was was geared that way, you know. So, you know, with, with in hindsight, obviously, it, it was it was just something we all did. You know, it wasn't just me. It was, um. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just. I was just to say, a lot of people just fob it off as part of life. But you know, I obviously know different now through my studies and stuff. You know how much it's affected me in later life. You know, so which you know, is probably what you were going with your question. Like, but uh, yeah, yeah. So it's. Uh, I mean, there was a group of us. We were very lucky because uh, the, the, as we got into our teenage years, uh, we all loved rock music, and our friends were Catholics, so we didn't have any bother we and then when we started drinking in pubs it was a mixed crowd and we we were all united in a love for music and uh we didn't uh the shit was left at the door of our local pub you know which was which was lovely and we're still friends today all of us you know which is a an amazing achievement after all these years like you know you know the way you described your childhood there uh constantly living in that fear that something bad was going to happen it just brought me back to the, my last kind of years in in drug addiction and alcoholism, you know, you like because your crimes are getting more more crazy. You know, you're getting involved in more serious uh, criminality and all these different things. And it was like towards the end of my own um, addiction, it, my life was pretty much like that. It was I was living <coughs> constant fear that my life might be taken. You know, because of of the amount of different stuff that I would have been involved in, and it just for, what it brought up for me was I was thinking as you, of you as a young child going through something like that, who was who done nothing to nobody, and just having to be that fearful of someone attacking you, you know, because of yeah, uh, I mean where, it's where uh, you lived. it's a uh, it's a terrible uh, indictment of where, where how how it was, you know, and thankfully it's not like that now, but you know and. Uh, people like myself can use that experience to the better, you know, to make it better. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I had the usual. My mum and dad got split up whenever I was seven years of age, you know, and it's that old, uh, I mean, but I was very lucky because my, my mum and dad didn't believe in one side or the other, you know, so I wasn't I wasn't brought up that way, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, but I thought I did. I thought I had to be a certain way, but... People wouldn't people wouldn't let me do things because they said I was too clever. I wasn't cannon fodder, you know. I, I asked to I asked to join a certain organization once, and they said no chance. 
And he said, why not? And I says, well, you've got to take orders from him. And he says, I'm not going to listen to that prick. So, you know, that was... <laughs> so so that, uh, that, that career never got off. And uh, I was protected in a way by a lot of people too, you know. So, uh, yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but... I say in, in, in hindsight, I'm not trying to fob it off because it's really important, but it's, you know, it's not just me. We all get on with it and we all group together and with the drink and the drugs, some people were worse than others, but mo most of my friends have all had some sort of problem at some stage in their lives, you know. And uh, I say for me personally, I, I you know, I, I, I love the company because I always feel, felt as if I wanted to, to be included because I felt excluded because of, the way I was brought up, you know, the way I was living, you know, and uh, whenever the drugs, came, I just wanted it in the drink. I just wanted the oblivion. Yeah. You know, I, I used to force myself to drink really fast and then run so that it would go straight to my head, you know, and so that it would get all my <laughs> you know, things like that, you know. So, uh, but it, I mean, I dabbled with a bit of a bit of coke and stuff in London, but uh, I was only when I hit South Africa when, because coke, just you know, made me alive. Like, you know, and it what, was, what was Cape Town like? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've, there's a couple of bits of writing that I've written, and uh, uh, yeah, Cape Cape Town was a, a goddess who seduces you, but you never see the undercurrent. You know, what I mean, it was uh, uh, it's a bit like London, I suppose. Excuse me. Uh, when you've got money and things are going good, everything's grand. But whenever things start getting a bit tight, and you're, you know, you friends just start. Falling by the wayside, you know. You uh, beautiful, beautiful place, great people. But uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as I say, I got I started getting involved in some uh, nasty stuff towards the end. So it was I was lucky that I got out of where I was. You know. Yeah. Is it because you because you got you you ran out of money in Cape Town? You kind of fell into the criminal the the, the drug trafficking. Oh no! Uh, well, it was the money was the reason that I did it. But I mean, for for years, I, I mean, I always had plenty of money. Uh, but it was still doing what it was doing long before that mm. final thing, you know. So, uh, but it's sort of, you know, you've discussed it several times yourselves. I, I, went, I went past that point of no return like a few years before. You know, I was driving around Cape Town with a gun between my legs. And, you know, I was only white guy allowed into, allowed into certain areas because I was able to bring stuff out and deal in the white areas, you know. So it was... Yeah, and I was trusted. So, uh, well, I thought it was, you know. So it was, uh, but it was yeah. a false, a totally false way of, of living, you know. And uh, I have that double-edged sword of, you know, if I hadn't got caught and stayed there, I'd have been dead. Yeah. Either by the drugs or somebody would have shot me, you know. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. You're yeah, lucky. but it was, you sort of, sometimes you'll think of things and you just go, Jesus Christ, how the hell did I get out of that? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, you're probably uh, lucky. You're probably lucky you didn't get caught in Cape Town because the African South African prisons are notorious, aren't they? My friend's father was a guard at uh, Paulsmore, and we we used to bring them drink up at the weekends. We but I mean I, I used to go in and out of there all the time, and uh, I mean the the very I mean I just recently watched uh, Raphael Rose uh, series mm. on prisons and uh, he did very good South actually. African. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant. But uh, yeah, but I mean, I can't remember the guy's name now. I wouldn't mention it anyway. But he, because it was a long time ago. But uh, he had said that uh, you know there were several bodies come out each week. You know, just as a matter of fact, sitting over a beer, and I was like, and I says, "What's it really like?" And he says, "It's just hell on earth." You know, and he worked there because they have a they have accommodation on the on the grounds, you know, so the staff would live in the accommodation, and they, they aren't much better off than, that's the thing, you know, they're not much better off than what the prisoners are, really, you know, and there's that, there's a big connection there, there's not, because, you know, your, your brother could be inside, <laughs> and you could be a guard, you know, and it's, because the poverty there is so severe between, well, and obviously between black and white, you know, so, I remember yeah. sitting smoking a, smoking a crack pipe one night with these gangsters in a, in a, a shed, a, a shack, and a, Kyle Eacher. and it was they asked me to give me a rendition the story of how it was Northern Ireland Belfast was like with all the shooting and all that and I, I sort of explained it the best I could while smoking crystal meths you know and uh, the guy big black guy just turned around and looked at me and he says but you're white 
you know, what are you fighting for? You're white. <laughs> You've no reason to fight, you know. And his logic, I was like, ooh, he's actually making a point here, you know. And it was, so we chatted about it, and it was really, you could really see his, uh, he was quite taken aback by this, you know. Yeah. But, and, for him, it, sorry, James. For him, it was about the actual color of of who you are. You know, he didn't really realize it was more. I don't know. It was it a difference of of what? It, just hundreds and hundreds of years of 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 different stuff. Really, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think when you when you look at it and the knowledge, obviously, we've we've all done our studies now, and uh, you know the. The, the history of it, it's poverty. You know, poverty is the driving force behind all of this. You know, and, you know, David Scott was talking about it yesterday on that prison bag on prison break. On you know, it's uh, it's not new. It's not uh, uh, we all know about. It. It's been written about for years. But uh, what, what, what the hang of point is, what do we do about it? You know, what are we going to do? You know, and, and what you guys are doing and what I'm doing a little bit with the the, the charity and stuff is uh, chipping away. You know, and it's uh, it's. Because we, we see it, we've we've been there, I haven't walked in your shoes, I haven't done what either of you have done, you haven't done what I've done. But we still have the same sort of uh, ethos of where we're going with it, you know. Yeah, I think as well, you make a good point there around poverty. Poverty um, is probably the one thing, or one of the main things that connects everybody in Northern Ireland, working class people, because a lot of the people involved in the troubles would be from working class areas. And I think that... Maybe uh, the English government, um, the British government, don't give two shits about the poor people in 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 Belfast. Save the politics for another podcast, but, yeah, but, but listen, yeah. it's the same down here. Do you think Fine Gael and Fine Fáil give a shit about nationalists in the north? They actually don't. Do you know? It's it's Is like poor it's, to, to, to them, they're they're disposable. They're not interested in them. Do you know? And I think that. Yeah, for another podcast, but maybe re- rethink the whole state altogether. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, listen, I mean, I, I've been lucky because I've been away, you know, and you're not living that day in and day out. So, you know, I went to London. I had to come home for a few years to get my knees fixed, and then I took off again. And, you know, I ended, I'd been away like 20 years, you know, with a couple of short visits home during that. So whenever I came home via prison, I seen the change, you know, after the Good Friday Agreement, after the, you know, people, you know, like today we go, we'd go out for a pint and, the, you know, there'll be tables outside bars and cafes and all that, you know. And I thought, oh, flip me, Belfast got cosmopolitan. You couldn't have done that in, in my day, you know. And it's, uh, you know, I, it's one of those things I used to say cheekily earlier, everybody should made, be made to leave for a year, <laughs> you know. And it was only whenever I went to Cape Town and then came home via prison that I seen true poverty. You know, I'm not. I'm not putting it down. Yep. Well, there, there's the poverty that's here, but I mean, what I seen in Cape Town broke my heart. Mm. You know, it, it was. It, you just had to look away because it actually made. Because I'm quite a current fella, you know, and I, it just made me. It just made me feel so sad. Yeah, you because know, the poverty, poverty is relative. Like, and in in Ireland, the poor people compared to poor people in Cape Town would be seen as very affluent, you know. Um, that's that's you're, right, yeah. You're talking about poverty in Africa, you're talking about no sanitation, you know, no like proper beds to lie on and houses to live in, you know, shanty yeah. towns with diseases and r- running water, no electricity. That's the type of poverty you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, it's, uh, I was able to go into those areas, you know, and, uh, you know, still dodgy for me but you know I was protected in a way but uh, part of me is glad that I've seen it but I mean I, I was doing one of my early modules in the open university studies was uh, this about gated communities and it was this place in Cape Town which was just being built and I remember playing golf and then putting the stakes in to measure out the land for the actual gated community that came up and then I ended up studying it in prison which was quite a bit of a, yeah. a mind twister you know <laughs> Yeah. It's like, oh God, I remember those stakes going in and I'm sitting in prison doing a, a module on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so quite do strange, te- you know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the time leading up to the 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 arrest and the imprisonment? Maybe the, the last few days in South Africa and how that came about and what it was like being on a plane with that much drugs. Like, what? Like, we've all seen banged up abroad and stuff like that. Like, all this stuff must be going through your head. Or are you so high that you don't really think about the getting caught? It's very strange, James. You're you're one of the very few people that ask me this whenever I'm on it. So it's uh, 
I'm not uh, I'm not that versed on it. It doesn't come out naturally because and as at the time I was messed up. Um, I suppose you could go. I'm a, I had my fortieth birthday on the fourth of April, two thousand and seven, and I was running out of money. I literally only had a couple of hundred pound left in the bank, and it was. I was just, I was at my, but my dad was coming over for a month for my birthday. So uh, he came over and sort of, he didn't know. Um, but I says, look, I've got a wee business deal. I was just blowing shit up as arse, you know. And uh, I said, I've got this business deal coming through the houses and blah, 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 waffling. Lying through my teeth, basically, which I'm not very proud of. But uh, anyway, he helped me along, gave me a few quid, and he looked after me for a month. And... At the time, I was going, shit, should I tell him? Because he would help me, you know? And uh, my mates were going, you, know, you should go home with your dad. You know, the ones that knew was in a bad place. And there was only a couple of them knew. And you should go back home with your father where you got the chance. And I was, you know, you don't care and you don't think. So uh, So he, he, he was there for a month. And at that time, I'd already made the decision after he left. We'd put it off to do the trip. So I knew he was doing it before he came over, and then after he left, I then left and at the end of start of May, around about it might have been around about this time. It only a couple of weeks, but I had nothing. You know, hardly any pet, no petrol left in the car. I was actually borrowing money from the dealers, the guys that I was doing it for, uh, for food, and I was hardly eating. And any money I did get, I was just using it on coke and hookers. And uh, the night, the morning I left, this is one thing I do remember, the morning of leaving, I was, you know, the the, the grouted tiles on the floor. I was down with, I'd had a couple of girls around, mates or guys around the night before, and they're all chopping coke up. So there was a lot spilt on the floor. So I was actually down on my, yeah. my hands and knees, scraping in between the grouted tiles and, you know, trying to, uh, and I had like a quarter of a tin of flat beer, I think with some cigarette ash in it, and you know that because there was no drink left, and it was like shakes and yips, and and then the guy came round and he gave me a couple of brandies, and he was wearing he gave me give me a case, and he says right you you go now, I'll take you to the airport, and off we went, and then I met a mate at the airport, and I didn't know this, he reminded me a couple of years ago, I don't actually remember meeting him at the airport. And he said to me, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me, you know? And uh, so then I went out to Trinidad. They kept delaying the flights. Things kept happening. I was stuck there for a month. So, and it was, you know, I didn't get as much cocaine out there as I, I was using. So I was sort of semi in trouble. So I was compensating that with, with drink. And uh, it was sort of pretty much hell. And uh, I was going through, my dad was having to send me money because um, I was lying to him. I, was, I told him I was out there doing another business deal with houses and stuff, and which is all lies. And uh, the the day before I was due to fly back, I, my dad had given me money and I bought it. I said, right, I'm getting using this cash. And I'm flying. I still had the bag. I picked the bag up ages ago. So I'd had the bag in my possession for like, like two or three weeks. And I'd actually got kicked out of two hotels and all that, you know, because so, so, so it was madness. And uh, actually slept in the streets one night with a bag full of cocaine. But uh, I, where was I? Yeah, you were in uh, Trinidad and you were getting money sent over from your father. And Oh, yeah, so the, this was the, the morning of the, the, I said, right, I'm going to the airport. I'm paying cash for a ticket to... Uh, Oh, what do you call that island? I can't forget. My head's gone. Yeah. I said it's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but I had to go. It was, it was one of those uh, uh, third world islands. Cuba. No, it wasn't Cuba. Some, somewhere like that. Because I would have Trinidad, then Venezuela, and then somewhere like that. But I would have ultimately ended up in Miami. And then Miami back to the UK. So at the same time, I got the flight ticket from the, the dealers. So I was sitting there with a cash ticket, cash ticket. So the, the one from the, the ticket for the dealers was to fly direct to London and the cash was to go via Miami. So it says, right, me being the greedy, sensible guy, says, right, I'll keep the cash and I'll get out of this and I'll get the, the ticket back to London. So it was that touch and go 
of whether 50-50 of whether I ended up in jail in America uh, or <laughs> or England you mm. know so so it was that you know and there's no logical thinking about it you know so uh, I, got, I got on the plane I was told somebody would contact me on the plane um, and then when I got there I mean I was I was hammered when I got off the plane and uh, they put me over with their bags and called over their size me oh shit this is it and then stuck a spike in the bag, and they just—I mean, see this business of putting clothes over stuff in a bag and all. <laughs> Forget all that nonsense. They don't—they don't carefully look through your bag. They just tip the bag out. <coughs> Excuse me, but anyway, there was a, this lovely blue shirt there, and they stuck a spike in it, and this—the powder flew all over the, all over the bag, and I went, hey, yeah, 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 you're not talking your way out of this one, mate, you know. And uh, as they were slapping the cuffs on me. I was sort of leaning on the desk because my legs were a bit wobbly, and I was like, "Oh Jesus!" Obviously, and uh, there was people walking past, going, mm. "They had loaded, they had loaded the plane." Yeah. So I was the fall, I was the fall guy as uh, people were walking past. I sort of recognised a couple of people, and they were sort of going, <laughs> "And that's a, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting point to bring up because it's very it's quite common." that um, somebody would be um, alerted to the authorities that there were that they had drugs on them um, as a sacrifice to let the other more substantial amounts of passengers through. Do you think that's what happened with you? Well, yeah, I think they... Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I still did it, you know what I mean? I know. I'm, I'm yeah. not saying, uh, you know, I got what I deserved and all the rest of it, but... Uh, when, when I think I remember, I mean, the interviews were just crazy. It was, I don't, not no comment things, loaded nonsense as well, because that cost me four years. <laughs> if, I'd have, if I'd have pleaded guilty straight away, I wouldn't have done four years. But uh, So it's not like the movies. Yeah. But uh, the customs guy says, oh, eventually you've arrived. Took you long enough. They've been waiting for me. But I said there have been so many things, cancellations, that you know I've been flagged. Long before that, and I think they were just uh, putting it off until they got did get the plane fully loaded. I suppose you know, and because it, it, I mean, it's an industry, as you know. I mean, it's just uh, I mean, the war on drugs is uh, it's, that's a different, another I say another podcast, but uh, 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 it was all in hindsight and so bright I that I could see all this. You know, Do you know so, what sticks out for me? Do you know the the value that all these guys at the top have on people's lives? You know. The value that they had on your life, the consequences that would have been there for you. But you know what? I look at this, your situation, as in my own situation. That was probably, you could look at it any way you want, but for me, it was probably the best day of your life. Mm. You have, I mean, that's another thing, Tommy, that I say. I mean, I don't believe in God, I never have, never will, but somebody, <laughs> something's looking up. I mean, I, I, as I say, when I was doing that, I, I, I do tell people this whenever I was down doing that on the the tiled floor, I said, maybe I'll get to prison and I'll be able to do a degree. You know, that actually went through my head when I was on hands and knees on the floor. And and I say this, uh, with you know, prison did save my life. You know, we'll, we'll stop in that life by going to prison saved my life. And then what it did in there helped me with my life because I turned it on its head. You know, I turned a bad situation into a good situation. Good, good. How much did you? Decision. How much did you get caught with, Michael? One point one. It started off at two two and a half kilos, and it whittled down to one point one kilos. And I reckon the sellotape around it put it over the one kilo <laughs> because and because they couldn't have done me for drug trafficking if it's over one kilo. Okay. How did your oh, sorry under one? How did your family react? Hey, hey, uh well, my dad, um, he had the, he got the phone call. You should read the book. Yeah. <laughs> my dad got the, my dad got the, the that phone call, the dreaded phone call from the police cell in, in Brighton where I was being held, and uh, it was what this is like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. I didn't know what end of me was up, and then you know everybody can hear your call, and they're all shouting at you and everything. Um, and he turned up two weeks later. HMP Lewis and came to visit me. He says, "What the, f-? you know, I'll not go into the language too much, but you can get you can get the gist, mm. especially him being a retired police officer." Like, uh, but he was he, <laughs> well, it was that part of it. But he was more. Well, he told me in later years he was more worried about what I would have to go through because he knew what prison was like. 
he says, you know, we don't send people to prison to have a good time, Michael. And he says, mate, the thought of that hurts me the most. Um, my poor mum, mum and dad have been divorced for a long time. Uh, my mum was returned to sender letters until I got home. And uh, then it was because she was so angry, you know, that I could do that to myself. Mm. And uh, But once she calmed down, uh, but that's that's me and my mum, you know, we both were just very volatile like that. We go snap and then, okay, what can I do? And... This is what happened with mo- most people. I don't know where, whether it happened with you guys or not. It happened with most people that I, that are close to me. They ripped me a new asshole and called me all the names under the sun and laid into me in no quarter given of how much of an idiot and arsehole it was. And then the last sentence is, what can we do to help? Mm. Yeah. So let me give you a piece of my mind. I hate you for what you've done. And I'm not, I'm, you don't... You know, but can I help you now? You know, so uh, actually, I find that quite you know emotional. What, still, can, yeah, I, I can completely relate to what you're saying because they are the genuine people that really care for you, like and love it. Because I see it, with my own family. I see it, with my wife when I was destroyed. I see it with f- family members at the moment. You know, like um, it's all you want from is you could be giving them a hard time, just telling them finding every fault in their behaviours um, but they don't see they just cannot see that it's 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 you're doing it out of love. Although like we've recently learned through the Gabramate podcast last week he gave a few different examples of what way to be able to deal with a family member in addiction. Watched it for a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what you're talking about there Michael is just unconditional love yeah. that's what that is it's like no matter how hurt well, this is how hurt they can be how disappointed you can feel all those things but yet still rally around the person and still help them in spite of everything well I, I, can, t- I can tell you a lovely story my mum and dad hadn't been seeing each other they've been mum remarried you know uh, you know 20 odd years maybe 25 years and I, they, they'd got I didn't know this but that you know I would when I was getting my home leaves I would have had to stay, I had to stay at my dad's house so my, my dad got me a bed and then my mum got the duvet and the cover. So she came up to meet him and said, what can we do to, together to help? You know, I get I get the women's stuff, you know, the duvets and the pillows and all that. So, uh, But I didn't know this now that whenever I was coming home, because I'd seen them obviously for on visits for years, but the first time in McGabry, it was my first visit, I'd sent numbers out separately to my dad and my mum. And... Uh, <laughs> Oh God, I'm gonna get slapped for this, but uh, <laughs> I remember I got the visit. I went visit, so I've got got escorted over to the visit hall, and I walked in, and there was the two of them sitting together in the visits, and I mean, boom, lump, all these like, feelings, and I mean, I'm just home from England, you know, and this is the fir- first first time I've seen my mum, and since I did the trip, because anyway, uh, you know, anyway, I was quite. A thousand thoughts, and I sat down. And I said, "Flip me if a new coming to prison would have got used to the guy that done it years ago." I know, yeah. So I got a, I got a quick from my, my mother. But uh, Do you want to? But they laughed, and and it was lovely, and they chatted, and it, you know, and it was just one of the nicest things. And then, you know, there was, it's, it's amazing on the visits with things like that. You don't see anything else around you. You do You're all your as you say. You've got that hypervigilance. It's there. Your extra eye if you want to call it, but when you're in that bubble, it's just, it's lovely, you know. Yeah, so. and it just shows as well that um, parents can be separated and divorced, but still have a, they can still be a, a loving connection there, you know, they share a mutual love in you, and that brings them together, even if they live apart, and they have different partners and different lives, there's still that connection, you know, and it's a nice thing to be able to witness. Well, my, my, dad, my dad passed away a couple of years ago, and it was obviously difficult, but I was okay with it now, it was okay then, but uh, it was his time, you know, and uh, he, he, he was done. But uh, I used to still used to whenever something would happen or would have an argument, I think it's all your fault anyway. You made me, you know. So you just uh, <laughs> you always put the blame back on them, like you know. <laughs> I know, yeah. But look, rest in peace, your father. Anyway, you know, he sounds like he was a good man. Oh yeah, he'd be grand. He's fine. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it was like in prison? Maybe um, the early days and how long it took you to settle into it, and how you got into the education side of things. 
Um, as I say, well, luckily enough, I recorded it all, so it's it's easy. I've, I've, you know, and it started off just like sitting here with a with a jotter and going. I've just spoke to that dickhead James Leonard. He's done my head in, you know, and and, and Timmy's not too good at it, you know. So you write something like that then down and then and progress from that. So it's a bit like that, but uh, the. It was incremental. The more prisons I've seen, the more wings I've seen, the more I learned of how to get to handle prison. Uh, the more I've seen it as a, a bureaucratic minefield of uh, uselessness, basically. They couldn't or- organise a piss up in a brewery, but, uh, but with, with, with some really good people there who wanted to do good things, you know, um, and some just nasty, outright bastards. Um, I was. What started me off on the on the studies thing was, uh, which again I've told a lot of people was that I was I was reading about Philip Zimbardo in the Stanford prison experiment, oh, yeah. you know, with the guards, yeah. and the prisoners, and I was wondering, here's me, you know, if I was a prison officer, like I mean, I passed the police exam when I was eighteen, and they told me to come back in a year, but I went away and never came back. So you know, that was in my head when I was younger to be something like that. I said, if I was a prison officer, would I be that asshole? You know, would I let that uniform, you know, would I be that arrogant self, anyway? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, the this guy came, this officer came to the door and told me I had to go down to the SO's office. But the way he told me and how he told me wasn't very polite. And just as I'm reading about Zimbardo, and I went, hey, what gives that man? That is only a person, he's younger than me. I mean, I was 40. When I went to jail, you know, and I'd been, I used to run pubs, I used to run dodgy pubs in London, you know, I used to run the Chelsea Headhunters pub, you know, I, and all pubs had gangsterism, so I was no uh, valid, if you know what I mean, but uh, I was like, I'd, I'd rip his head off, he spoke to me like that, and then the other walk of life, and I said, but still, mate, <laughs> you know what I mean, so... Uh, and I went down there, so I said, what's your man's problem, I said, Andy's having a bad day, anyway, we're going to put you on high risk. Because I, you know, so we, I had a chat with the SO and he says, Look, we, don't, we don't want any trouble out of you. You're going to get a long time. You're going to have to start finding your way. Um, so he, he says, Look, but I'll give you a bit of advice. Don't come off high risk because they'll always try to, to get you to come off it no matter because you'll be moved about the system for a while. So that sort of first early interaction and through sobriety then, it got me into the studies. So I started, you know, getting into, into that. And then, obviously, with the mentor, I was teaching guys to read and write. And that got me more involved, you know, and I was helping out with things. And we tried to start a prisons advice centre and all these things. But all these things that we were doing then are actually coming to fruition now, or have come to fruition in prisons in the UK and Northern Ireland. But uh, a, lot of people, a lot of senior staff have told me, senior officials said, you came just before the wave. You know, so uh, as I've recently hooked up, but it was the education and uh, juggling and sitting. So, some sometimes, I mean, one prison I done the passive route, nothing happened. One prison I done the aggressive route, nothing happened. The third one I sat back and watched it and went, ah, <laughs> you know, this is how. Then the fourth one I applied at that, and things were a little bit better. You know, what kind of courses were you but doing? Um, well, I started off just with an openings course, and then you had to do your English and maths and that, but then. I uh, it was done doing the mentoring, and then uh, I was going to education departments, but it was mostly writing. I was mostly writing my book up. That just let me because it was something to do because I hadn't been sentenced yet. So it was only when I got home to Northern Ireland that I really got into the studies. It was full time on then, and then I was a server. I was I was the server orderly. There was only one on the our wings, you know, and uh, I was that guy, and. Uh, but the thing is, I was I was helping people reading and writing, and guys. I was a listener as well, you know. So I had all that going on, and uh, I say the early days, you know, tried one way, it didn't work. Tried the other way, it didn't work, and uh, I think it's all it's all about managing time. And then you start to, I think one of the biggest turning points for me though was it wasn't just the education. Was I knew it was not, I knew it was going down, and I had, and I went, you know what, well, you gotta stop lying to yourself. You're not jacked a lot. You know, you just start being truthful to yourself, Michael. So I looked in that little polished bit of steel I have over the sink and I just looked into it and I said, no more. I just looked into, my, I looked into myself, you know, 
And uh, that's what I've done, you know. And sometimes it got me into trouble, you know, because I'm not going to beat about the bush and tell. But what, what are you going to do? Kill me? You know, what are you going to do? Stick you in jail? That sort of attitude, you know. And try to be respectful of others. Yeah. You know, and that, and that so it was a good thing that always stood by me in life because, I mean, the pubs, you know, the pub scenes, there's always a bit of gangsterism going on somewhere. And, uh, you know, some serious guys knocking about. And I always found if you were respectful to them, you would get the, that respect back, yeah. you know, and don't cross, yeah. you know. So I think in prison, you have to be very streetwise to be in prison. Yeah. And uh, as I say, sometimes, as I'm sure you both know, you can be the nicest guy in the world and get on with everybody, but sometimes you have to stand up. And, uh, you know, I just barked at everybody for a while. So. You mentioned <laughs> as well, um, you mentioned there in passing that you were a listener. Do you want to tell people about what that actually is? Well, the listeners are prisoners. Uh, it's funny, I, I met... Well, the prisoners are... are uh, listeners are prisoners trained by the Samaritans to be as Samaritans are on the outside. Only Samaritans would take phone calls. But in prisons, you would go to somebody's cell if somebody was of suicide or self-harm. So you'd always go on twos. You know, back in the day, I think you were able to go on ones, but now it's more safe for safe safety reasons. You go and uh, ones. So, but your door's always open. So I found that because you people knew who you were, you'd get a wee rap on the door here. Mickey, can I talk to you about such and such? So, a lot of guys knew not to actually do a call out because it would go on their record. So if they were having mental problems and psychological problems. This would come on their record whenever they were involved with kids later on, if they were having a custody battle or something like that. So it was like a double-edged sword. You know, of guys that were really in trouble and needed proper help, but they couldn't go to the authorities because that help would involve it being documented. You know, so uh, so we, 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 we did that, and I uh, said there was a team of us, and one of the guys I met as a listener... I'm actually meeting. He's coming today with for a beer. After we became best friends, and we still are, you know. So, uh, and a few years ago, I met John Lonergan. And he was doing the the Samaritans annual Irish Samaritans annual. So I had a nice chat with him, and that podcast was brilliant with him. You know, he's a, some character. Yes, yeah, you know? and I, I had a lecturer over in UCC, um, Cindy O'Shea. Um, she was smart in years, but uh, she helped bring the listening program at the Cork Prison, actually, where we're from. Have you just started it's, it? It's there a few years, though, yeah. It's around Irish prisons now as well. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah it, it really is a fantastic thing. There's another thing that I did, uh, I might have sent you a link to it ages ago, was the Prison Smart, which was uh, which Gabor Mate uh, touched on again, was the breathing and meditation. I, d- I did that on HMP High Down in 2008. And I was just doing a meditation with this because if you get, you know, I saw I've got PTSD, anxiety, all the, all the IBS, all the, all the lovely stuff that goes with that. Uh, and the, one of the things that helps me is if, if I get excited or happy, I can have a, a PTSD attack because everything just goes, yeah. Can I ask, so, can I ask you something? So the, so the med- meditation thing I still do today, but I started it in prison. Then you can continue it on the outside, you know. But it's specifically designed for prisons. This course, you know. So yeah. do you know? Do you know when you were educating yourself inside in the prison, Michael? Um, you know that was all early on in your recovery and whatever. Um, and were you able to retain information like reading books and stuff because? I really, really still struggle with that. Like, that was... No, I I know, like, for people in early recovery or any recovery, like, I'm dyslexic as well, um, you know, and I've never been diagnosed with ADHD or anything like that, you know? But, like, when I look at uh, the actual... What ADHD is, there's a lot of it's quite similar to me as a person. No, I don't put a label on myself because I haven't been diagnosed with it. But... In early recovery, I found, like, in the prison systems where I got educated as well, I found it very, very, very difficult to retain mm. any form of information, you know. Um, it's a lot of us to do what I found and what I've learned. I mean, I, it used to happen to me. I would, write, I would write four or five lines and then move on to a paragraph and then get on to the next paragraph, and I couldn't remember what the first paragraph was. And a lot of it, and then... 
I would. I, I was remember going to do an exam one morning, and a particular member of staff was on, and he was one of those guys that wore the hat right down over the nose, and wore the black gloves and the full uniform and the moustache, and he didn't give you a pat down. He searched every, you know, every, you know, inv- that invasion, and this is like five minutes before you're meant to sit down and do an exam for a degree. And because of this fight or fight thing that comes automatically, your body has ways of dealing with that and the brain's way is shutting down. So you what you, the, your daily life in prison is full of little moments like that, mm. little fight or flight moments. So your body gets conditioned to shutting down and that's why you can't remember things. Because you're still in that shutdown mode. You might have think it's past, but it's already there. So, you know, maybe something happened that morning or the day before. It might be still in your head. But as soon as you go down to do a bit of writing or a bit of study, you go, oh, what the hell is that all about? <laughs> you know, so mm. you're still you're still in that space. Yeah. So that's what I find, you know, and I find it really amazing that... that, that you, you, I mean, I remember going to do my actual final exam 12 days before I got out, and the governor, who was a right, he didn't like me very much, put it that way, uh, he double-booked the room, and we spent the first 15 minutes trying to find a room for me to sit with the teacher. To sit, and that bastard did it on purpose. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say yeah. it, but he did it on purpose, and I know he did. And ironically, the only room we could get was his office because he'd taken the day off and he didn't have to deal with it. <laughs> I like, I came back. I'd say he was. I'd say he was sickened when he came when he found that out. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd say, I, and I was. I was out a week later, so it didn't matter. You know? I'd say I'm waiting. You was waiting the snacks underneath his table and all, Jim. What you think? <laughs> no, it was just. It was just the idea of it. Was like, oh my god, you know, so sorry. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, but as you say, the 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 studying side of it inside is, um, I find it a lot, a lot of guys. Who the fuck does he think he is walking about with books? Mm. You know, he's up himself. You know, and a lot of people purposely tried to to take me down. You know, through adjudications and stuff because, you know, once you get a black mark against your name, that's it. You're that. Mm. No. You're labeled yeah. that person. So uh, yeah, that's. Uh, it wasn't easy. And yeah. this, anybody uh, that... our, our podcast, our podcast is going to be shown in Irish prisons, and there's going to be prisoners watching this. And you're going to, they might, you, you might spark an interest here now in education, and they might say, you know, I'm looking at a few years how I want to use my time. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to that person? Yeah. Um, maybe what colleges were you applying for? What courses can you do? What maybe the process? And maybe yeah, just some advice for that that person. Well, the, the the first the first thing I would say is never give up. You know, uh, the strength that you've taken to get through to where you are now is a testament to the the, the strength that you actually have in itself. So, if you're st- embarking on this education thing, stick with it. Uh, ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Um, and just g- give it, give it your, give it your. Just give it your all and be truthful, you know. And if you're having difficulties, uh, speak to people about it. And why? I suppose why you do it. Um, you're not going to change the system, but what you can do is help people in it. You know, pe- people that are coming behind you. And for, for me, I remember the first, my first, and this is um, why it's important. And these guys will both know this because you've done it. And for anybody that's following in our footsteps, is you know, mine was a while ago, but my first meeting with Shad Maruna, and he came to visit me, was what can I do for you and what can you do for me? And I said, well, I want letters after my name. And he says, why? And I says, because I want to make a difference. And I know that at my age, my time of life, when I get out, I won't be able to get a job. And I have to do something else, but I need letters after my name because you will be recognized as a criminal. So he says, I, I says, what do you want from me? He says, I want your head, I want your knowledge, I want your experiences, and I want you to be able to share them with me. So that's how we became good friends. So what the why is what that education has done for me has opened doors and allowed me to sit with government, allowed me to sit in rooms with uh, uh, the Department of Justice officials to meet with people and hold your own. 
mm-hmm. in a constructive way. You know, you're not just barking at somebody. You're actually you're combining your personal experience of prisons and what happened to you with the, the academic knowledge. And to get, together, that's a very powerful tool that people can't shirk away from. They have to listen. And I'd say, yeah. and for, for people that don't know, Shad Maruna is one of the most, um, he's a world-renowned criminologist and he's especially interested in how people desist, stop uh, offending behaviour and reintegrate back into society. And I think for people interested in criminology, social studies, maybe I, I think that any department, uh, criminology department, sociology department, in any university around Ireland, would be only too happy to help out a prisoner that was looking to, you know, learn you know, in terms of access to books and access to courses and stuff like that. That's the other thing I have to mention is that I'm, I'm also part of a, a group called Convict Criminology, which is which is a global uh, people like ourselves who went in and came out and most of them have done PhDs, but also guys that worked as correctional officers or prison officers and stuff or have experience with criminal justice and are sort of remit as to do what we're doing is to help those help others i read on inside time which is a uk prison magazine i read of a guy called andy arresti who'd done a few years inside and became a, a doctor and he's doing wonderful things and i say I'm, I'm friends with all these guys now we went to italy a few years ago for a conference you know and they've been so supportive for me, you know, I, I I haven't worked since I got out of prison, so you know, a lot, a lot of things, conferences and stuff, they've got me arranged flights over, the, you know, mm. things like that, you know. So uh, there's there's that support there if and people need to know about them, yeah, you know. And as Jeffrey Ross said to me the first time I met him in, in England was, uh, you, I think in prison you think you're the only one. You're the only person in your head, which is the right way to be because you're the only person you can do is look after yourself. But there's so much support out there if, you know, if you use it, you know, it's there for you to grab the bull by the horns and ask people because they, they will give you the help, you know, and bend over backwards to help you. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a thing we see, we're starting to see now with, you know, giving people that chance. They'll spend the rest of their life trying to prove you're right, you know. So exactly, that's true. Get just get get stuck in and do it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just and and I mean the the biggest thing was it kills time. Yeah. You know, I mean we all know this. You know, why did you start doing something? Because you're so you didn't want to be mopping floors every bloody day, like you know. Mm. Teddy might have designed a new mop, but you know that's a different. <laughs> <point>. <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, when you got out of prison and that reintegration process? Still going on, mate. Still going on. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that, it, things don't turn out the way they don't. They don't. There's not enough about it, you know. It's uh, nobody warns you <laughs> what what it's like, you know. Uh, I'm not going about the negatives because there's too many. I'm able to sort of have a rough idea. Okay. What what they are, you know. Uh, it's been what I what I have found about the the honesty thing that I go back to. That uh, you know, when I said uh, uh, people respect you for it whenever they find out what you've done. And the early days of me coming out when I started drinking again, because I hadn't had a drink for a long time, I was worried that that would send me back down the slippery slope of the, the drugs, you know, which it, it didn't, thankfully, you know. And then I'm not reliant on it, but uh, uh, whenever I was getting a taxi home and driving past Queens, I said, I was able to, you know, it says, oh, when, when was that? And I said last last month or you know last year because uh, I just came out of prison and I went there and did. Oh really? Well, what did you do in there then? Well, what were you in for? First of all, what were you in for? And then what did you do? What would you do while you're in there? See, when you told them that uh, anybody that you did a degree in prison, you came out and did a master's, you're now working with the people that locked you up. Fucking stick it to the man. Give it to the man. Get in there. You know they, the whole. The whole perception changes you know there, there was there was one day i came back on a home leave had been taken to something and they purposely made us late for the train so we had to wait two hours in those days the trains were every two hours so we must have been like five minutes and you had to wait two hours for the next one so i said this our fella i said have you any money there's only two of us i says you any money he says i want to get a taxi how much a taxi be about 60 quid that's a lot of money like you know and uh, here's my wife got it. He said, so we went and got a taxi, ordered a taxi across the road. And we got in the car. He's going, I was going to Belfast, right? But that's going to be 60 quid, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, where he's going to, going to uh, Ulster University. And we're just out of McGilligan. We're going to do talks about education in prison. And you just seen the guy's knuckles go white on the on the steering wheel. You know, he's just like, he says, he says, fuck me, you're not going to rob me, are you? You mean, no, we're going to talk about education. And I'm just finishing, I'm just finishing up a degree and I'm hoping to go to Queens when I get out. And the other guy had just done some uh, first year, second year English uh, the court level or whatever. And he that's bloody brilliant, lads. You know, that's magic. And so the conversation immediately changed from you're not going to rob me to... And he, and he said, at the, whenever he was dropping us off, he wished us luck. And he says, if I could give you SDUs for free, lads, I would. You know, and that was the kindness. See where that kindness came from, from just switching that by being truthful and honest and being... And using your time to good use, as I say, that, that's what the point that I'm trying to get at. Because the prison does give you that time. But on the way back... Uh, with the vans coming to pick us up, this is like two days later, and we're in the prison van, and the taxi driver came out, and he see me, I was in the front seat, and he see me, and he run out in the middle of the road, and he's giving it the thumbs up, and he's going, nice one, son, nice one. And I told the boys what had happened in the van, and all the other fellow prisoners, and they were all going, nice one, Mickey, nice one. And the only one that wasn't laughing was the prison officer driving the van. <laughs> and that's a testament to what the job does to people yeah. as well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it breaks the say, breaks the spirit, and you know, I think it's soul destroying, isn't it? Well, that I mean, all that stuff that you're saying, the advice and the, the door open. I mean, I recently had a one a Zoom meeting like this with our justice minister, and I've spoken to our previous justice minister, but without all that stuff, I would never have had those doors open. So yeah, you know, the, you have to be in it to win it. Yeah. So look, look before we before we close, Michael, do you want to tell us maybe about like. How things are you are for you today? Um, maybe some plans for the future. Or... Well, to be honest, now the health hasn't been good. So I've been on a slippery slope. I'm just moving and I have to move house. So personal stuff aside, um, I'd given up a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, well, not given up, given up, but uh, I just got fed up of hearing the same old crap over and over again from politicians and officials. And I was invited up to Hyde Bank for the Learning Together thing. The Shad, Shad had a couple of speakers and Wayne Hart uh, came up from Dublin. And uh, there was somebody who was meant to come over from England. I says to Shad, what's your plan B? And he says, you are. And I was like, oh, right, okay. So anyway, I went and uh, did, did my bit. And, but I got talking to the the head of the prison service and a, a few other people and I was really impressed with what I've seen and I don't mean that <laughs> prison's not good prison's horrible prison shit yeah but the attitude and the thought process and the things that they were saying I went they, they made me my ears prick up and pay a bit of attention you know so I then I was speaking to a guy there uh, and he asked me to go for a cup of coffee in a week or so, so and then invited me onto the board of this turnaround project, which and then COVID hit obviously. So you know, right about that time, I think it was one of the first times I'd sort of talked to you, James, yep. as well. You know, yeah. And uh, so things have just been put on hold for a year, and it's been a tough year. Uh, I'm sure for, I mean, I can't even think what it was like for prisoners mm. inside, but I know in Northern Ireland they, they had a slightly different setup. They, I don't think there was any, they had any cases or anything, like, and they kept the wings isolated, so guys are still able to get out. They weren't banged up all day like they were in England, you know? Mm. So the, I think they've done something good there, you know, and then a little few people out early as well. As, as I say, they've got a very progressive uh, mindset there, so I say what I'm doing now with the turnaround project is having Zoom meetings like this. I'm able to use my experience of academia and prisons to influence what's happening with with that with the uh, and it's helping. You know, I did something the other week, which is is actually hopefully getting somebody a job, and I'm going, yeah, you know, that's all right. Brilliant. <laughs> I can live with that. Yeah, you know, so it's uh, yeah. It's been a wild coming, and uh, say, I, I, I fell in with the, the rest of the board and the people involved are an amazing. I mean, I mean, you guys have it down in Cork as well, you know, and you just time, you know, time, bide your time, and if things don't work out, don't give up. 
And as I say, I'm not physically able to go and do the job that uh, I would ideally be doing, but I can still add my my tuppence worth at the minute, you know, which is uh, which is worth more than a fiver, yeah. you know. So yeah, it's, uh, no, it's brilliant. And look, if there's any way we can collaborate or help out, and you know, we'd love to. Yeah, well, you, you will be. I say, well, de- I'll definitely say this is a starter. I know it's been a while coming, but uh, you know, we, we we've a, a podcast plan. We've all we've all other sorts of stuff. Uh, we're trying to do a radio program, maybe and things, you know. So yeah, definitely. And and is this because uh, there's the the north south connection with academics? Mm. You know, that's already there. I'm sure you're aware of it, James, being in yeah, the Yeah, we, we, we hosted it in Cork a couple of years ago. Right, so I, I want to do that with uh, the organisations and stuff, you know. So, uh, because it, we, we do have a slightly different slant on things than the rest of the UK, if you know what I mean. Yeah. As, in two, as the one island, but two different countries, you know. But as I say, a different podcast for a different day. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, so it's. Yeah, well, they'll definitely, definitely be hooking up. But this, it's only just begun, really, you know. So, exactly. I say, the COVID thing has been great because we've sort of been able to take a breath back in some ways, step back and go, right, okay, what can we do now, you know? So, yeah, well, look, we hope to, once we're vaccinated, we hope to travel up north to, to do maybe a, a weekend of podcast with some, and we'd love to meet you and get a cup of coffee and a bit of lunch or something. So, we'll definitely do that. Well, listen, we'll hope... Hopefully by that stage we'll be up and running as well, so you can be guests and ours yeah, and perfect. stuff, you know. Most definitely, Michael, we'd love to. Yeah. And as I say, you know, stick together. This what you guys I say, take the, the hat off. Uh you know when when I when I when I seen James on I'm sure well you've obviously known a lot better than I do, Tommy, but when I seen James on the the Tommy Tiernan show, you know and anybody that I've met that's seen that, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, mate. <laughs> you know, and it was just, you took, you did you did something personal there without knowing it. It took, and it's, it uh, took an awful lot of courage, do you know, for, and, and I think that was, that was the first of many to come after James. Like, it gave people the courage to really start talking about their own stories a little bit more. And, and you know, I think James kind of helped push people yeah, all I did people. there really was like people have a perception about who's in prison, who's on drugs, who's in homelessness. All I did was put a face to, and, and a story, like a context to, to one individual. And that got people thinking about, mm. I wonder how many other Jameses or how many other people on the streets or in prisons or on drugs are actually genuine, okay people. They've just been through tough times, you know. I think that's all we did was change, kind of got people thinking a little bit critically about um, and and maybe try and cha- try and break some stigmas and stuff like that, and challenge some stereotypes. That's all we did, you know. And the podcast now was trying to give other people the platform. When Timmy came on, and my wife came on, and y- yourself, and there's loads of people like me out there that good, honest, hardworking people. They've made bad decisions, but there was always a, a context to it, and just about trying to create a bit of awareness, a bit of education. Well, that, was, that, was, that was one of the most standout bits of me that really hooked me was whenever uh, Tommy asked you what had, what had changed, and you said, Well, I'll not attempt your accent, but you said, I, I met a woman, and he was like, I that will do that to you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that made sense. That could go anywhere, though. That could go anywhere, the woman thing. It could go yeah. left or right. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, I thought it was brilliant, you know, I to say. I, I know what that feels like, to not know what you're doing, but you're actually helping people. Um, I sat in a pub a couple of years ago, it was a lovely summer's day outside. Everybody's out having a smoke. There was quite a few of us that day. And this woman came up and says, are you Michael Irwin? I says, I. She says, can I have a word with you? And I went, shit, what have I done now? And she says, do you remember him? And she pointed over to this guy, sort of standing meekly in the corner, having a cigarette, Henry vaguely. He says, you helped change his life. That's my husband. You told him he'd knock his bollocks in if you ever seen him back in prison again. <laughs> and I went, oh, but I couldn't remember the guy's name. And I said, and he told me at the time, I can't remember now. He said, and he gave me a big hug. And he says, thanks for helping me with the reading and writing and stuff. You, t- you, player, you, you helped me. And it wasn't just that. And she was crying and gave me a hug. And then I started crying. And then I went over to the table and my mates, what the? fuck's going on what's that all about and then they all started crying everybody was like yes yes you know so it was, you don't know the effect that you're having on people unless you put yourself out there and yeah. the only thing I'd say about it is I was asked already just be careful 
because revisiting all the time can also flip yeah. the other way, you know. So always be aware of it and have people near you too, you know. Of course, and you have to do it. You have to do it with a good support network, and even people that we bring on the podcast, we try to vet them as best as possible, and not not too vulnerable, you know. And you have to be in a good place to do something like that, you know. You have to be kind of steady in your recovery, and you know. So um, that's that's where the listening training comes in too, you know, because what they say is always have a backup, you know, have somebody that you can be the smart and to or smart and for you know be it you know always have somebody that you can unload to because getting it off your chest is the is the way to, to help you cope with it you know yeah. yeah look we leave it there michael um thanks for your time it was a pleasure to meet you you're just yeah. a gent and we look forward to meeting you in person cheers guys all the best thanks michael. I'll, I'll speak to sean about this later <laughs> do do tell him we said hi and we look forward to talking to him on the podcast too sometime all right all the best lads god bless michael. god bless enjoy your points right. <laughs> take it easy <laughs> hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.